I have this whole thing where leadership is love. Uh, you have to love the people. If you don't love the people, you can't be a good leader. But leadership implies followership. How do you get followers? You don't get many followers intellectually. You've got to get them in their heart. And the stories that get that going are when they realize they're a part of something that's going to make somebody's life better. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Though Phil Gilbert's official job title is general manager of design at IBM, he's more often referred to as IBM's very own design evangelist. But ask him to describe his earliest creative impulses, and he'll tell you without hesitation that he was an entrepreneur from day one. It quickly became clear to me that Phil is all these things and more after spending the day with him at IBM's colorful, post-it-strewn design studio in Austin, Texas. In other words, to use a tech-speak term of art, Phil is a unicorn. Need proof? Look no further than his decision to embed design thinking at scale across a company that spans 387,000 employees and 170 countries. It's been a mere six years since Phil began tackling the monumental task of changing the culture of a hundred-plus-year-old organization. And under his leadership, the legacy computer brand has transformed into a nimble, forward-thinking company employing a fleet of designers charged with applying their problem-solving skills to innovative software and B2B infrastructure initiatives. Fast Company recently praised Gilbert's accomplishment as establishing a modern standard for increasing the role of arts in business. Never content to rest on his laurels, Phil remains as committed as ever to fostering a culture of makers. Nurturing creativity is a business value for Phil, who proudly shows off the well-stocked makerspace he set up for his designers. We conducted our interview only a few feet away in IBM's in-house radio station, where employees are invited to broadcast content to their fellow IBMers. Please enjoy my conversation with Phil Gilbert. Given the many fascinations I have with you and who you are and what you're doing, all of which we're going to get to, what did you like doing as a kid? What were your interests? What were your passions? I was an entrepreneur from... From day one. Day one. Uh, as early as I can remember, uh, I would make uh, spook houses at Halloween mm. and charge money. Mm. And we had, and even before that, with friends, I would put on puppet shows when I was five years old. And I remember one time, one of my friends, of course, you don't know anything at that age about other people and their situations. And I came home and I said that this particular person and I were going to put on a puppet show and his grandmother was showing up. And my parents were like, what? You know, Mrs. Buttram is going to show up. These, this, That's the richest person in town. And she's going to pay five cents to see your puppet show and be in our backyard. You know, so I would, I would do things to make money. And I, I got a paper route when I was 12, 13 years old and threw papers. And I always wanted to kind of do something. Did you think of yourself as creative, or maybe if it's more helpful to ask the question this way, what's your memory of your own creative spirit as a child? You know, I, 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 I don't, really. I, I think of myself as entrepreneurial. 
And what's the distinction for you? The distinction is, and and I think what uh, in many ways kind of, I don't know, my superpower has become, if you will, is I know a good idea from a bad one and I can execute the hell out of the good one. I do have a pretty centered view of what I think is good and bad and maybe right and wrong, what is useful in the marketplace. And I'm using marketplace not as a, necessarily a commercial place, but a, as a place to make something and do something and, and be rewarded for it in however that reward might be. And so I, I think that's what I'm particularly adept at as it has come to beauty uh, and to things. And again, I'm not talking about beauty at the surface level, but but beautiful objects, beautiful things, things that people would want to use and want to be around. I have a pretty good intuition about them. And as I have, through my life and career, have run across all sorts of people in all sorts of situations, I've kind of married that with what I think is a pretty keen sense of empathy so that I can pretty accurately project what's going to be useful to a population of people, then I really kick in. And I, I will take that idea and I'll figure out how to execute on it. Right. And just to probe it just that much further, do you not see that as creative, that ability? It's not. I'm not sitting on a psychoanalyst couch here. And so from that standpoint, yes, I see it as creative. Uh, I mean, I, I get creative in the operation, in how yeah. to execute, yeah. for, for Ex sure. Exactly. But uh, yeah. So from that standpoint, yes, I, I, I do that very well. And I figure out uh, unique ways to execute things. We're going to get to, you know, the... The design program here, uh, I think that we have very creatively executed it in a way that ensures or at least helps ensure its sustainability in ways that are very different from how other programs have been approached. And I think that is creativity. But typically it's in the opera operationalization of something as opposed to the original founding idea, if you will. Right. But given a broader sense and a broader spectrum of what creative engagement is from yes. what I understand and of your work now and just to, you know, I was trying to get a sense of what that history might be. It sounds like to me, it's been part of your life for a long time. What about your education? Where did you go to school? Uh, what did you study? I was, uh, went to Nichols Hills Elementary School in Oklahoma City. <laughs> I was a rattlesnake. We were the Nichols Hills rattlesnakes. And by the way, midget A baseball champions, uh, as well. And uh, what position did you play? I played catcher, uh, which uh. is why I can't run today. My knees got screwed up through, throughout my catching career. But, uh, I still love that because it's the most engaged it is. member of the team. It is. And, and the one player that has a different point of view from all the others too. Uh, for sure. Right. And, and, you know, for better or worse is also the one that, that thinks they're in control, <laughs> which <laughs> right. has probably also been some other underlying theme. And then I went through, uh, again, I, I bring this up only because I do think it has informed my kind of worldview. Oklahoma City was one of the few school districts uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s that was actually taken over by the courts. And uh, in my middle school years, I was part of the busing uh, that was enforced by the courts, uh, the federal courts in Oklahoma. And that was, a, that was a fascinating and wonderful, liberating experience. And uh, I got exposed to experiences and cultures that I value to this day. Hmm. And a whole set of fascinating stories. And that was about three years. I was bused to three different schools and then ended up in high school at John Marshall High School in Oklahoma City and then went to the University of Oklahoma for- What did you study at the university? Majored in accounting, minored in computer science. Oh. So just to go back to the busing for a minute, I'm just curious about that. And yeah. it sounds like for you personally, it was a, a generative experience. Absolutely. It was, it was completely eye-opening. 
I'll give you one anecdote, uh, which to me kind of illustrates, uh, well, at, le- at least what it meant to me. I won't make a bigger point than that. But uh, I had gone from a school that was, uh, in my case, virtually 100% white, grade school, and then in eighth grade uh, to a school that was about 50% white and 50% black. And that was the one of the years, I think, I can't remember if it was the, if it was the thrill in Manila or one of the other uh, Ali Fraser it was the first Ali mm-hmm. Fraser fight. Mm. And many of the friends that I had made were massive Muhammad Ali fans. I became an Ali fan. And I would go home and my parents and a lot of my old friends were Joe Fraser friends. Ali has to stay off the ropes. If he stays on the ropes, Joe can hit him in the, in the kidneys, under the heart, behind the ears, whatever. It's bound to have the telling effect. We're coming up to round six. One third of the fight is over. Should it go the distance? 15 I didn't get it. I didn't get why people were so adamant. Both of these were black athletes, but there was absolutely a cultural divide in all of the communities between who was an Ali fan and who was a Frazier fan. I realized uh, not only were there intercultural differences, but there were intracultural differences that were beyond my capacity to fully understand at the time, but I understood that they existed and that the world was a heck of a lot more complex than my upbringing up to then had mm. allowed me to see. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was it was completely transformative. And from our conversations already this morning and for things that I've read about you, et cetera, I can see how that thread continues in your life, right? And as you work with trying to bring, change culture and trying to bring things together. and, and Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You've been really very generous about telling the story about IBM. You've been out there in all kinds of wonderful ways. And I do want to get to that. But I'm also interested in the guy behind it. And a lot of the listeners of this podcast want to know who is that human being behind it, right? And this is why I want to explore some of these issues. And I'll return to leadership later because I think that's an important piece of this. But how do you think of yourself? Uh, There's so many descriptors that one could use for Phil Gilbert. Do you see yourself as a change agent? Do you see yourself as an IBM design evangelist? Do you see yourself, well, you've already said, but as the entrepreneur of this particular community? Or do you see yourself as an educator. I know you're going to choose all of the above in some way, but I'd just be interested in your own self-reflection, what you think about Phil. And Yeah. I mean, when people say, what are you? I say, I'm an ops guy. It gets back to this execution thread. And when I try to unpack that further, I think the difference between potential and kinetic is the execution. And so I think that whatever I bring to a particular situation is an ability to clearly see a way to execute it to its fulfillment. Hmm. Everything I do, I think, is in fulfillment of that mission. If I educate, it's typically... It's in service of that. It's in service of that. Got it. If I evangelize, it's in service of that. Well, I have a lot of follow-up questions on that but I don't think it'll make sense to any of our listeners until you talk to them about what you've done. So if you could just spend a couple of minutes talking about what's going on at IBM, a little bit of the history and just help shape that story. And then we can follow up with some of these other issues. Sure. Uh, I came to IBM in 2010. I was uh, president of a company that had been acquired and 
one of the things uh, that, that was interesting to IBM about this company was that we could build what many people would think is relatively mundane middleware, integration software. The technical things we did were roughly speaking identical to the technical things that half a dozen other startups were doing and every major company was doing. IBM, Microsoft, Oracle, name your company. But we were winning the market. And what was particularly interesting is that we even had business people advocating for us. We had business people at major enterprises that loved our company and our software. And this was, again, integration middleware. That was different. And when we were acquired by IBM, it was primarily to uh, not only acquire these products, but to acquire the expertise to bring that level of innovation and that kind of experience to a portfolio of technologies that were middleware and integration or what have you. And so uh, that's when this all started. I was asked to take over a small part of IBM, and we started to introduce the notion of bringing designers into, into play. And how do you start uh, validating those designs earlier in the process by bringing user research in, in, into play and, and kind of what we would call human-centered research practices today. That turned out pretty well. And over the next 18 months, that portion of our portfolio got radically simpler. We were much more efficient and we took massive market share and our, our clients really loved it. And so in uh, January of 2012, actually in December of 2011, our current chairman, Jenny Rometty, became CEO. And when she learned of this story, she, she said, what you've done in this relatively small area with a thousand people, can we do it everywhere? IBM has about 380,000 people. And that was a challenge. Globally. Globally. Right. right. How yeah. many countries? 170. Wow. That was a challenge that, uh, well, I, I hadn't done it before. Not many people had. And it was a challenge of not only bringing design and design thinking into an organization like that, but fundamentally it was a challenge of how do you change a culture? We're getting back to that word. How do you change a culture at scale when none of those people report to you? And I don't know how operational you want to get on this, but I'll fast forward to kind of where we are today. That was in the spring of 2012 when we started working on the problem. We spent 2012 uh, essentially figuring out the architecture and many of the ways that we would do this, we put together a small team that would begin the recruiting of the designers. That was the linchpin of the of the exercise. Was it started by bringing a new skill set in, and then once we started doing that, we had to start changing the culture of everybody else at IBM, so that they allowed that skill set to be co-equals and to help transform this right. this this company. So we spent 2012 doing that. In 2013, we kicked it off in earnest. And since 2013, uh, we've added about 2,500 formally trained designers. We have created a service organization of about 20,000 professionals building great user experiences in every realm for our clients. And we have, uh, roughly speaking, 200,000 people certified in design thinking and are working every day on teams that are, by and large, reframing problems and delivering products and solutions using design thinking.
Phil wasn't simply indoctrinating the entire IBM workforce into a design mindset. He was also reviving IBM's cherished legacy as a pioneer in strategic design. In the 1950s, IBM CEO Thomas Watson tapped architect Elliot Noyes to develop a corporate design program to seize a creative and competitive edge in the growing tech industry. Noyes recruited a dream team of design legends like Charles and Ray Eames, Iro Saarinen, Paul Rand, and Isamu Noguchi, who worked together to develop a corporate character that shaped IBM and all its products into a singularly dominant force in modern computing for decades to come. Important probably also to ask you about, this is a really a continuation. That year, 1956, is significant not only for the fact that you were born, but I believe yep. that was the year that Elliot Noyes came to That's correct. IBM, right? And yeah. so the heritage of design here with Elliot Noyes and Paul Rand and Charles and Ray Eames is, is hugely significant. And yeah. I'd love for you to thread that back as well. Sure. So it's been fascinating. So El Elliot was a World War II mate of Thomas Watson Jr., that's how they met. Mm. And throughout the years between the 40s and 1956, they kept in touch. And uh, Elliot kept introducing Tom Watson Jr. to more and more principles of why good design mattered. And there's a lot of apocryphal stories about how that happened. But it started in 1956. He was retained as the consulting director. And he invented the, the IBM design program. And he is also, by the way, he's the identified patented designer of the original IBM Selectric. Exactly. Right. Uh, so iconic designer, iconic designs. And then, uh, you know, brought in the Eames, brings in Rand. And those, all of those people begin to inform, uh, you know, what is arguably the most well-executed and effective corporate design program ever. Forget the aesthetics of it, the usability of those machines, when you go to the some of the archive machines in Armonk, and you see those very original consoles of System 360 and and what have you, and you start seeing the use of color, which is really where Eames uh, helped us at a product level, start kind of identifying that. And you start seeing these early notions of HCI in the computer age, where certain colors were reserved for certain things. I mean, the most obvious would be red for alert or, or stop, things like that. It's not only beautiful, it's purposeful. They brought all of that into IBM and IBM executed on it very well. Unfortunately, because of issues of globalization and more recently, the commercialization of software, which overtook hardware as our primary focus, we kind of lost our way from a design standpoint. And when we rekindled the program, we made a conscious effort to relink us to that past. Mm. Uh, we had maintained relationships with the Eames family, but we rekindled our relationship with the Noyes family. Fred Noyes has become a dear friend uh, of mine personally, but also of the program. Fred is Elliot's son. Uh, the first time I met him was actually in the house that Elliot designed that he grew up in, wow. in New Canaan. Wow. Gordon Bruce who worked in Elliot's studio. An Art Center alum. And Art Center alum, that's right, right. I'd right. forgotten about that. Gordon wrote the book, like he literally exactly. wrote the book yeah. on Elliot. Uh, he and I become great friends. It was actually Gordon that reached out. Uh, and so I walked into, uh, I gotta tell you that I, I walked into Fred's house, the house that Elliot built, that Fred grew up in. And I mean, it was 
it was a home you could I, I I sat down in it and I felt like I had been in that space for 30 years. It was so inviting. Uh, and I don't know what it is. There is a connection between the things that manifested in Elliot's personal life and what I have come to learn about IBM that transcend he and Tom and that transcend the fact that he started the program. There's a connection and and I and I think it was designed. I think Elliot understood IBM in a way that's so fundamental, uh, more fundamental than most. Gordon tells me the story that at a party in the mid-1970s, somebody was talking to Elliot about IBM, and it, it was kind of this, I don't know if it was a corporate overlord conversation or what it was. I don't know if it was positive or negative. But he says, Elliot stopped the other person and said, no, you completely misunderstand what IBM is about. What IBM is about is giving humanity the ability to master their environment. Mm. And that is a profound thought. Mm. And it transcends computers and technology. And as I uh, reflect on my own experience with IBM, that's it. And it comes with a, a beautiful and wonderful heritage, one that I never expected as a startup entrepreneur for 30 years. I never expected I would equate with a, a corporation. Uh, but it's a set of values and an ethos that uh, both pervades the business side of our business as well as the community side. Computers? Who's got time to figure out how to use them? That's how the owners of a clothing store, father and son, felt about personal computers until they got one. And a catering business until they got one. We're IBM, and we've seen some very skeptical people become very enthusiastic. And that makes us proud. Because we have more computers helping more small businesses than anybody. IBM Personal Computers. Small business is getting big on Did you design this program of design? Did you bring design thinking into the process? Collaboration, yes. teamwork. You obviously reached into a history. Yeah. And I think you speak very movingly about that. And I think being a good designer is also being, uh, to some extent, a good historian as well. And being able to carry the riches forward into what, what the work is. But to what extent was design itself the engine that brought about this design program as we see it today? The whole program has been a design thinking project right. from day one. So when I was asked to do this, uh, I had two immediate companions, uh, Carl Vredenberg and Charlie Hill. And we had a point of view. We, we had a point of view about, was this gonna be centralized or distributed? for many reasons, reaching back into the past, uh, I felt like it had to be a very distributed program. Uh, we had to put guardrails around it. Elliot Noyes used to always say unity, not uniformity. And that's been an informing and controlling aspect. It, it's about bringing unity across IBM and across everything IBM. So we've always, from the beginning, it was never a product design issue. It was, how does IBM show up in the world full stop? And how can we create that interface so that it is obviously IBM, but is absolutely not the same IBM? So if you go into our experience at South by Southwest, or if you go to our Think exhibit, or, or if you execute a new product on the cloud today, it's all informed by what I think is the most comprehensive design language out there today. It's the same design language, whether we're talking about physical events, digital interfaces, hardware, mm. brand, advertising, what have you. 
So we've we've reached back, but but we did a few things. So we started work on the design language, and we wrote down the first version of what has become enterprise design thinking, and it was basically based on the set of practices that I brought in from that company that was acquired. Uh, we had never written them down, but we practiced them assiduously, and it. It's basically design thinking as the world knows it. And can you just elaborate for a little bit on that, just so listeners understand what design thinking is at, at IBM, what enterprise design thinking is? Sure. So it's basically design thinking as you might know it. It is rooted in empathy, in really understanding the user of the, of the tool, of the thing, and their context, and then prototyping, and then getting feedback on the prototype. We have put together three tactical things around the design thinking tactics that you can read in any number of books. And those three things are hills, sponsor users, and playbacks. And there's a particular reason for each of them. In my own career as an entrepreneur working with distributed teams, I found that the single biggest contributor to inefficiency and to not hitting the mark was not having a clear shared understanding of what you're trying to do with enough specificity that you can actually do it, but with zero specificity on how you do it. So implementation agnostic. And it comes from a military concept called commander's intent. The military has actually figured out very well how to communicate to a large distributed team what the mission is, but they also understand that no amount of practice in the world is gonna actually anticipate every single thing that could come up in the field. And so our hills, are basically what is our specific intention to go do over the next three to six months? And in doing that, how do we really excite the user in a differentiating way? Now you go figure out how to implement that. Hmm. Sponsor users are a scalable way to make sure that when we take a hill, we have identified the people in the world, not IBMers, but real users in the world that are gonna help us co-create so these are not beta customers. These, these people get involved with us the minute we start building and prototyping. And they're on the hook. We do it with other people as well. We do all sorts of research. But these are particular individuals who have committed time every week to work with our product teams or whatever kind of team to actually validate that we're staying the course and are building something that they would be excited about. And then finally, playbacks are not the daily scrum. They're kind of like design charrettes. But playbacks are a place for our broad population of stakeholders to come in and see the progress uh, of a particular project presented as an end user would see it. Mm -hmm. So we begin to start educating now broad sets of stakeholders, executives, and what have you in what's being built. I mean, as you know, teams have been part of the way designers work for a long time. One of the things that strikes me about how you talk about teams, and you specifically talk about diverse teams, Yep. which we can get into what you mean by that, is that those teams have been, from how I see it, the critical element in implementing change at IBM. Yes. We view the team as the atomic unit of work. And we think, in general, well, I should say I think, uh, for this statement, process was the defining characteristic of scale in the 20th century. And what process did is uh, if you had a if you had essentially a monopoly, which is what any business person wants to have, if you have a monopoly on a commodity, process is what scales it. And you can make money and you can do well. By the end of the 20th century, with very few exceptions, everything has been commoditized, right? The cloud is commoditized technology. Everything's commoditized. Cars are commoditized. They're driving to a place, right? 
And so the way that we're going to build, we call it the modern word is experiences, but the way we're going to build experiences to differentiate our commoditized thing is through a different thing. You can't processize this, right? So it's now we've moved into a world where collaboration is needed. And, and because of the speed of everything, we've had to shift the collaborative modes to the left. Whereas in the past, you could have design as an exercise up front. And then you could validate that design in the world with prototypes and what have you. And then you could hand it off to engineering and engineering could build it. And then you bring in sales and marketing. It's this big waterfall process. And what was funny is when we started this, you know, uh, this project here, and I see it at many of the enterprises in the world, they still say they practice agile, but they practice agile in engineering. Right. But all these other things are still waterfall. Right. Well, that's, that's not the world. And so all of these functions have to shift left so that they all have to be a part of the process from day one. It takes too long otherwise. And so now you've got to have teams that have designers and business owners, call them product managers, and engineers and developers and salespeople and marketing people and the legal people and the pricing people. They all have to be in the room day one or else you're back to waterfall. And that creates a really unique set of challenges, not the least of which is what the hell are we doing here? And if you don't have an organizing principle to answer that question, What's going to happen is they're all going to go off in different directions and you're just going to have chaos. And that's where, call it design thinking, call it user-centered design, what, whatever word you want to put on it, what that mindset brings you is it if you can communicate that mindset across these very diverse stakeholders that are being me measured in very different ways, if they at least have the common mindset that the user is the North Star, we now have a place to start getting alignment. I'm curious about this. Has it also helped with the implementation stage? Meaning, one of the things I've experienced, both at Art Center and seeing some of these programs elsewhere, is that there's an excitement. There is energy. There's almost an eroticism in generating the ideas and the innovation, right? Mm -hmm. But the implementation can be everyday and banal, and it kind of fizzles out. And I'm wondering if what you're talking about now and your use of teams has actually helped to tie those together and to in fact overcome what the potential problem could be down the line in the implementation phase. Oh, I think so. First of all, it gives real purpose to the implementation. And because they've been a part, the, they, the, the, Makes the, sense, the, yeah. the people, because they're part of the idea, right, right, right. they want to see it in the world. There's a natural point at the beginning of a project that I say is 80-20 design thinking to agile. And there's a natural point at which it goes 80-20 agile to design thinking. Mm -hmm. You pretty much have your, your prototypes are pretty well defined. You've gotten great market validation of your hills and your prototypes. Now you do go into execution mode, but even in that execution mode, we've left at least 20% undefined. So there's constant innovation, even during the execution life cycle. And I think that helps what you're talking about. But I think the integration of these multidisciplinary teams from day one is the other thing. They're all part of that process. They're all part of the innovation part of the process, if you will. Prototypes. Listening to you talk about prototypes is, you know, it's striking. It's like a deep philosophical way to live, to engage in the world. Yeah. And I believe every day is a prototype, I think, is a quote of Phil Gilbert. Yep. Right? right? In fact, the aha moment for me, you know, you want to get personal, we'll go back on the couch here. Uh, when I uh, first ran across 
what we now today call design thinking was in those early early and mid 1990s years uh, when IDEO was first formed and these ideas were first you know surfacing and you know it was a point of time in my own life when I needed uh, I guess I needed to understand that I could get better and your description of my take on this thing called design thinking is it's absolutely a lifestyle. It gave me permission to understand that tomorrow could be better than today, mm -hmm. could be different from today, and therefore could be better. And, you know, some people go to church for that. Uh, I went to design thinking for that. It gave me permission to like, I can be imperfect today. And okay, like don't do it tomorrow, but learn from it. And that's okay. That's where it started for me. The application of it then in more prosaic areas like product development just became, yeah. And it's why we could, you know, in my, the company that got bought by IBM, we were doing design, I, I tell people, we were doing design thinking in every function every day. And they go, what do you mean? How can finance do design thinking? And it's like, it's not about where they prototyping the financials. It's how they lived. It's how they engaged with the rest of the company. It's, it's this, it's this moment of humility that we all can benefit from. That's not to say we don't have egos. It's not to say that we're not proud, but it is to say that we actively, consciously remind ourselves every day that we can be better. And the only way we can be better is if we keep our eyes and ears and brains and hearts open. Uh, that's the only possible way. And that getting better, it involves an engagement. It involves something applied. It involves shaping and making and creating and discovering and knowing through that process. Yes, it's intentional. But it's a knowing that comes from making, which is a fundamental of an art center education. Yeah. Right, it's deep into that kind of applied and engaged work with Ab yes. things, the world, material, others, collaborators, yeah. ideas. I'm real big on artifacts. They can be any kind, but I particularly love tactile artifacts for that very reason, I think getting your hands around something, making something, projecting something. You know, when I, when I prepare a speech, you know, I start with prose. So I, I, I try to project that, that this notion of prototyping should pervade everything. I wanted to turn to talk to you about some of the ethical issues that are associated with the, with the work you do and frankly, what we teach at Art Center as well. I had an interesting experience recently we screened a documentary called The Bleeding Edge, produced by Amy Ziering, directed by Kirby Dick. It was on medical devices and okay. some of the fall off that's happened with the FDA in terms of really overseeing it and the destructiveness, the harm that's been done to so many people through these quote unquote innovative devices. And the conversation that particular film set off on campus and in really interesting ways is we tend to worship at the altar of innovation. We love it and we get really so compelled by it. But there are effects and there are ethical issues and human beings are affected. We can be talking about AI, which is a big issue where there are ethical implications, but also in even how we think about the user, right? Mm -hmm. What Facebook might think about the user with their newsfeed and we know that some of the consequences of that, what an ad company might think about giving to the user. All these issues that are swirling around now. And I'm really interested to know how you wrestle with that. Yeah. It's, it's a, a big question. I it's know. A, yeah. it, it is a big question. And I think it's, it's not one that's easily answered in terms of what to do in every case. But I do think it's the responsibility of 
the human-centered, I'm going to say business person, not just the designer. And we've tried to uh, put this in practice in, in as many ways as possible, that we need to understand and at least make hypotheses about potential implications of things. And then you do get down to what, what is the possibility of that happening? I mean, th there are other points of view to bring to bear to the question. It's never Absolutely. black and white. Which is the challenge. I mean, Which that, is the right, challenge. Right. But we, we do think that these things need to be surfaced and that it is the responsibility of particularly design research, but it's the responsibility of all of us to, an, to try to anticipate what certain negative consequences can happen from certain things. And then how do you design the business's response to those things? It may not be, we cannot build this thing. It may be different ways. It may manifest through how it's sold or how it's marketed or, or any number of other potential solutions to issues that you find. But we think it's the responsible thing to be transparent about what we find and hypotheses that can be made about the implications of the technologies that we bring into the world. We feel very strongly we've put, you know, AI is, of course, front and center for us it's recently. And our chairman, Jenny Rometty, talks quite often about, and, and we all very much believe that companies have a responsibility to usher these technologies into the world uh, in a responsible way. Mm. Paying and, attention to the ethical issues that are associated. Absolutely. With right. And like everybody, we make mistakes at, at times, uh, but the intention is there. For example, in AI, we've released statements and we've now uh, inculcated into our teams the ethical principles that we use around AI. And then we've now just released Designing for AI publicly. And so we've laid out our uh, specific practices for how you should think about designing for AI. Mm. And it includes not only the, the kind of design pattern questions, uh, but it also specifically includes how do you start probing for these ethical implications of what you're doing and how can you anticipate making sure that they don't happen? And if they do happen, then learn that and respond. Right. And this is a place, Phil, where I think uh, education holds a deep responsibility as well. So that before... Uh, you hire those brilliant art center designers. They've wrestled with some of these issues. We were talking earlier about the importance of the humanities and deep critical thinking and, and understanding questions of human experience that inform the work they do as creatives. And this is an, an enormously important part and enormously important responsibility, I believe, for what we're doing on the educational level so that we're preparing them for these questions and for them to take the kind of responsibility that you're talking about. Completely agree. You know, I've always said that designing for B2B, a business-to-business -business problem, to me is harder than designing for a B2C, a business-to-consumer problem, because at some level, we're all consumers. And for most of the most B2C stuff, we can at least intuit. We have our empathy with ourselves, if you will. You're designing a phone for use. You can pretty much design it for your own use, and you'll probably get it pretty close to right. You start designing something for a plant operations manager. Yeah. None of us are plant operations managers. We've never been them. So how do you do that? So, and the way you do that is understanding context. And I think the, the reason I go into this in, in this part of the conversation is to say that thing of not just understanding the need or the desire of the individual, but putting that individual into context of a broader ecosystem of players that's been the difference to, to date between B2C and B2B design. 
and why it's a little bit harder to be a researcher in the B2B world because you not only have to understand that principle, but you have to understand that that principle is going to work every day and all of the people around that principle who are also impacted by that person's work have got to be considered as a part of the solution. Well, I think we're getting to that in B2C. Mm. I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing today are because we didn't understand the context of the broader ecosystem of people around the person. So I, I think that these worlds of B2B and B2C are colliding in this particular way where uh, the broad ecosystem of dependent users or, or actors is going to have to be more broadly considered mm -hmm. for us to get this thing right. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to suggest that and really acknowledge your leadership in this. Human-centered is a very complex issue. <laughs> right? We tend to use that word, but right now we're talking about human-centered issues that may not be part of a design thinking textbook, right? That's right. Yeah. But that have huge implications. And unless we layer on these kinds of questions and perceive these kinds of issues and implications for how we live and for our culture and how we interact and how we see each other, we're not being fully human-centered. And so the seriousness of that statement of being human-centered, I think, is something else I think we need to evangelize, frankly, and yeah. we really need to educate people on. I think it has to become a bedrock part of education and certainly business education, kind of pulling it back into a, a business context. Uh, I think decision-making you know, go, decision making going forward has to have this element of human centeredness. Mm -hmm. And this isn't a, I'm not talking, this isn't a touchy feely, like political correctness statement. I'm talking about to make the right call, whatever your call is, we have to create new, uh, I don't know, rubrics for decision making full stop that recognizes that the impact on the intended party is part and parcel to the decision-making process. Right. Much like, for example, you know, I think in, in most decision-making today or in a lot of decision-making today, notions of sustainability are kind of more and more a part of daily decisions, certainly on the part of business decisions. 20 years ago, it wasn't the case. I think that fundamental change in our decision-making frameworks has to be and will be made to incorporate these things that we're talking about. Right, right. And speaks to your call for these diverse teams too, and all their diversity. Yep, absolutely. And a commitment to that and understanding of that yep. to address this human element. Yep. Yeah. You, know, you talked about diversity earlier, and, and what's our view on diversity, which is interesting because I, I talked earlier about skills diversity. You know, are you writing code? Right, are you right. a designer? Whatever it might be. But, you know, we are finding unbelievable evidence that diversity in every form, the more a team has it, the better and faster their outcome is. Gender diversity, racial diversity, more and more in our case, because we do work all over the world and sell our products all over the world, geographic diversity. I would say we're being much more intentional uh, in 2019 of how we form teams than we've ever been in the past. I think what I'll call the systemic intentionality of team racial diversity. More and more in our case, because we do work all over the world and sell our products all over the world, geographic diversity. I would say we're being much more intentional uh, in 2019 of how we form teams than we've ever been in the past. I think what I'll call the systemic intentionality 
of team creation and curation is going to be a, a factor of business going forward. And it's not for altruistic reasons. We caught up with Art Center alum Tina Zhang, a design researcher on IBM's security team, to get an insider's perspective on how design is currently being deployed under Phil's leadership. When I get to work, I'm walking in the midst of rectangle buildings. You know, your typical like eggshell color, nothing fancy. And then I start taking an elevator up to the eighth floor. And when I get out, it's just so much more vibrant. It's just a barrage of like visual stimuli. We have balloons in our space, comic stories that we've written and drew. My name is Tina Zhang and I'm a UX designer on the IBM security team. So yeah, as a UX designer or user experience designer, basically I make sure that our users' needs are always our North Star in guiding all the design decisions in our product. So the product that I'm working on is centered around helping our security analysts accomplish um, their daily tasks without um, any pains from the product that we design for them. One of the most challenging parts of my job is really getting into the mind of a security analyst. There needs to be a lot of empathy there. So I graduated from Art Center and I was going down this path of designing for social action or social change, but I just couldn't find an answer to how design can, can scale and what that would look like. IBM was trying to steer this 100 plus year old company towards design and design thinking and that really struck a chord in me. I really wanted to find the answer or even find an answer that would lead me to ask more questions and I've been here for three years and I still feel like there is more to learn and more to ask. Did I ever see myself in cybersecurity? Uh, no, definitely not. Even though cybersecurity as a topic is very interesting, like it, it wasn't an area that I thought I would be valuable in as a designer, but the need for designers in this space has never been as important as it is now. So a lot of times my job is also understanding how to ask the right questions at the right moment to get to an answer that really gets to the heart of a user's goal or a user's pain point. 
I wear as many hats as I need to push out my team's experience for our user. And that could be many hats, especially in a domain like cybersecurity where there's a lot of clunky products out there. It's like there's so many that I feel designers are much more willing to wear whatever hat they need to to get the job done because the ultimate goal is providing a user experience for our security analysts to the degree in which they can say that they love using our product. We are a predominantly female team, but we're operating in a predominantly male space. And, and that diversity of thought and background has really shined in our product and how we think about and rethink the space of cybersecurity. Us having a team with so many different backgrounds has really um, helped with bringing different ideas to the table. Um, and so it's, it's always a joy to work with my team because there's just always something to be learned from each other. I never imagined myself at IBM after Art Center, but I know that I made the right decision coming here. You referenced your fascination with leadership earlier, and I want to ask you a little bit about that. And I think I'd like to phrase the question this way. What has design and design thinking taught you about leadership? Well, I guess uh, a, a few things. Uh, I talked earlier about the fact that it gives you the freedom to make the call. If you're burdened with the fact that a call is permanent, whew, you, you're frozen. You're done. And if you're a leader that can't make a call, you're done. You're not a leader. So one thing that's obvious and for sure is this notion of you can make the call, and if it's wrong, that's a prototype. You can get it right tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a fluidity. I'm not one of these people that thinks, you know, fail off and fail fast. I think that's a horrible statement. And, and, you know, very few of us can actually fail in the marketplace. Certainly can't very often. It just gives you the freedom to act, right? If you're not burdened with the fact that everything is permanent or that anything is permanent. So freedom to act would be one thing. And the other thing is, uh, I think, part and parcel, uh, to the design process and to, I think, a designer's ethos is the ability to tell stories and in, in a show-me way, not in an abstract kind of a, here's, you know, if, if the first slide of the deck is the architecture, <laughs> then, it's, a, then right. it's not very good. But if the first slide of the deck is the person, okay, everybody can relate to that. And of course, what is leadership? Leadership is, well, I have this whole thing where leadership is love. Uh, you have to love the people. If you don't love the people, you can't be a good leader. But leadership implies followership. It's impossible to find a leader who doesn't have followers. <laughs> I'll assert that. How do you get followers? You don't get many followers intellectually. You've got to get them in their heart. And the stories that get that going are when they realize they're a part of something that's going to make somebody's life better. And 
if you're writing software, it means that a developer can get home a little earlier or maybe do a little bit more. Uh, if you're building an application for a plant operations manager, it means they foresee problems in the plant so that they don't become problems. And again, they get home a little earlier. If you can humanize the thing you're doing, the ability to gain followers is 10x, 100x. And so that's a part of this, again, getting back to human-centered design, but design itself, great design is so intentional about the user of the thing. You know, we spoke earlier about the transition from the ideating, the innovation side and the implementation side, right? And part of what we talked about was that early in the process, from the beginning of the process, they're there, they're involved, mm -hmm. they're engaged. It's theirs, they own it. They see it to a certain level of completion. Leadership, it seems to me, can take on the same kind of strength in the sense that it's not, here I am, the leader, follow me. I've got the idea, I've got the vision, it's all done, come with me. But it's, here I'm creating yeah. an environment. Here I'm creating a place to engage creatively. Here I am building a community, really. Yeah. Well, so. It's a great point. In fact, when we bring our designers in to IBM, we bring them to a short course that we have here in Austin. Our, globally, our designers come into it. And when I talk to them, I tell them, you're already good designers, but we're going to try to make you leaders. And leadership to me is not the person in charge. Leadership is an attribute that can be had by anybody at any level doing anything. Nice. And when that happens... A team can have, I mean, it doesn't ever happen this way, but a team can have every person on the team is a leader, but they're a leader in a particular thing and everybody else follows them. That is a perfect team. Every single person is a leader of something and everybody else follows that person. You get super efficient execution that way. So leadership has nothing to do with hierarchy. It has nothing to do with control. It has to do with the articulation of ideas, the empathy for your teammates, telling the story and, and laying out, you know, some vision. And it could be a vision for a very small thing or it could be a vision for a very big thing. And then having a backbone of steel. These and many other attributes are leadership qualities. And I think they're, they're so important for everybody. A question I like to ask a lot of the guests of this podcast has to do with how they think about change. And I think you've spoken a lot about it so far, and we can kind of distill a lot of what you care about in thinking about change. You may be interested to know that uh, half the mission statement of Art Center is influence change. And uh, it's nice. learn to create influence change. That's the entire mission statement. And I'm always keen to know how people think about the change that they influence in the world. And I'm wondering how Phil Gilbert thinks about that. To me, change is about culture. I'm always about the people. I haven't run into anybody that shows up to work to develop crap or to deliver crap. Or to waste their time. Right? Or to waste their time. Right, right. Like nobody does that. And so if, if what is happening are those things, then what I found is it's typically some, something in the culture. And, and so uh, change to me means looking at the culture and understanding uh, you know, what needs to be done to, to change it. So I, I, guess, I guess fundamentally that's when I think of change, I think of culture. On the operational side of it, if you want to know about change, if you want to know how to do change, go buy John Cotter's book, K-O-T-T-E-R, called Leading Change. 
you will learn everything you need to know about how to do change. And, uh, and, and it will change your life. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. I think it was written in 1996. He's a Harvard guy. He's, he's brilliant. That particular book of his is, is that's the Bible of how you do it. Uh, but what you're doing is you're impacting culture at scale. That's what change is. Well, thank you, Phil. You're a gentleman and a scholar and probably more of a philosopher than you think you are. But well, thank uh, you. it was a delight to speak with you and this to have an opportunity to get into such a great conversation. Thank yeah, you. it's been really good for me as well. I really do appreciate it. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff. Producer, Christine Spines. Co-producer, Luis Silva. Editor, Emily Van Bergen. And post-production supervisor and production consultant, Christopher Olin. Mm-hmm.